ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Today you'll hear the story about how a croc attack in the Kimberley led to a new form of pain relief. The crocodile, he just took my finger. Then straight away I got out of there and I went for my delatory. I know that my delatory is a numbing, numbing medicine. So I chewed it up and put the medulla on it and stopped numbing it, all right. And as the Prime Minister gets ready to fly to China... Will there be some good news on the horizon for Australia's red meat sector? In a moment on the Country Hour, we'll be speaking to the boss of Australia's Meat Industry Council. This is all coming up on today's program. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day if you are tuning in via the podcast. Now, imagine waking up this morning, switching on the ABC News, and the top story is about lumpy skin disease and how there's been an outbreak in northern Australia. The newsreader then tells you that there's also been an outbreak of avian influenza in southern Australia. Wouldn't that be bad news? If it did happen, how would authorities in this nation cope? Well, this mock scenario has been played out this week behind the scenes to test Australia's animal disease preparedness. And the Berrimah Lab near Darwin has been involved in this exercise. Director of the Berrimah Lab is Vidya Bardwaj. Uh, Vidya, what can you tell our audience about this exercise that's been dubbed Exercise Waterhole? So it's very exciting to have the opportunity of doing a dress rehearsal because that's essentially what it is. It's giving us the opportunity to identify what we're doing really well and what are the things we can improve on. And um, that gives us a plan to identify the gaps and then work on filling the gaps. So it's very exciting. All of us hope it's never going to happen. But if it does happen, it's great to know that we are ready. And are you still in this exercise? Is it happening right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's still on. It'll right. finish at about 2.30 today. Okay. And did you know this was coming or has the federal government just sprung it on you? so that it, No, yeah. no, no. We've been planning it okay. for practically, practically the whole year. I've been on the planning committee. Right. Um, because we wanted to make sure what we're rehearsing is appropriate. There's no point rehearsing something that's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to make this scenario as realistic as possible, test every aspect of what we would need to be thinking about. And it's great because it's made us think about things that I probably wouldn't have thought about before. Yeah, like can you tell, yeah, tell us more about bags. that? Yeah. Sorry. Well, simple things like um, we realized very quickly we ran out of room to store our garbage bags. We ran out of garbage bags itself. So it's simple things like that that you don't plan for. You plan for the big things. You plan for all the testing and the people doing the testing and the reagents. But there's so many other things surrounding it that you don't really think about or plan. And doing a dress rehearsal forces you to identify everything that comes up. 
and we're having daily meetings. We're taking down notes. So in the coming few months, what we're going to put together is an emergency animal disease manual to make sure if anything ever happens, we have all the ideas, problems, issues, solutions all mapped out already. So... For our audience, especially those, I guess, in the cattle industry, can you tell us more about the mock scenario, uh, what happened and how it was handled? So the mock scenario is that there's cattle with lumps that um, were in a property uh, in the NTWA border and they've been moved all over the place. And so lumpy skin disease being quite contagious there's now LSD in several places in Australia. This is the mock scenario. Yep. Simultaneously, there's highly pathogenic avian influenza in a few different places in the South. What that means is all the states in Australia are involved in a high-level emergency response, which means there's going to be a national shortage of reagents, of people, of supplies, everything. So that's what we're simulating. We're simulating exactly what would happen. So if we did find lumpy skin disease in Australia, what would the testing look like? What are the properties that would be identified for testing? How many animals would we test? What kind of samples would we be taking? What kind of tests would we be running in the laboratory? How anxious would the people be? How quickly mm -hmm. could we get results to them? This is all what we're practicing. How quickly could you get the results? Well, technically, on a very urgent sample, um, within a day. Okay. So that's it's very quick indeed. But if it's a surveillance sample, where we're you know we're not worried that the disease is there, we're just kind of doing some testing to make sure that the disease isn't there. That will kind of go like further down in the queue. So always the urgent, high priority ones will be put first, and um, those results, yeah, you'd get. An answer by the end of the day. And the cattle industry would be brought to a standstill while this was happening? That's. I think that would really depend on the chief minister's directions based on what the chief veterinary officer advises. But this would be like a very high-level discussion. It would mm. definitely involve, um, you know, uh, input from the industry bodies, and all of this was practiced in a separate exercise earlier on this year. That was exercise tread. That's right. Um, so I guess, yeah, this exercise this week is very much what the labs, the role correct. the labs would play. Understood. Yeah. So, exactly. Exercise tread identified all these other issues that, you know, we need to work on, that the lab testing is now a national exercise, not just a Northern Territory. Yeah. How important is the Berrimah Lab? Oh, look, Barima Lab is, I can't even tell you how important it is. All government labs are important. We have one per state or territory. So there's, you know, one in each jurisdiction. So we are it for the Northern Territory. But given our position as to where we are situated, so unlike the southern part of the country, which is protected by the bulk of Australia, we are right in the coalface. So we are in Darwin and there's nothing in front of us. So we are facing our neighbours who are not as lucky as us in being protected from other diseases. So we are at the, you know, coalface, so to yeah. speak. Well, I think there's only about an hour or so left of the exercise. All the best with it. 
video, and I hope you and I never have to chat about this for real. I hope so too, and it's been great telling you about it. Have a lovely afternoon. Thank you. Hello, my name is Sarah. I'm a third-year student studying at Animal Science Faculty, Universitas Gajah Mada. Um, I'm now currently at the Northern Territory for the Indonesia Northern Territory Biosecurity Program. And now you're listening to The Country Hour. And on the program yesterday, our top story was about Santos and how it was forced to stop its work in the Timor Sea. It was all set to start rolling out its pipeline for the Barossa project, but the federal court said stop. And this happened after a Tiwi Islands traditional owner, Simon Mankara, won an injunction against the work for 10 days while the court considers new evidence about potential harm to Tiwi Sea country. Mr Mankara was represented by the Environmental Defender's Office. The EDO's Alina Lakin says her client was very happy with the decision. He and the entire community are just elated, relieved and really proud that they've stood up for what what is really most important to them, which is their cultural heritage. And, um, you know, we we had FaceTimes and phone calls, uh, you know, for hours after we received the judgment with people in the community and there were tears, there was jubilation. And even though this is only a temporary protection, uh, people really feel that they are doing this for the future generations, for their children and their children's children, so that their cultural heritage is protected. So it was a hugely momentous decision uh, in their eyes, even though it, it is only a temporary protection. Apart from the cultural significance that the Tiwi traditional owners have cited in this case, what about the uh, environmental impact or risks? What was argued there? Well, well, this case really is about the heritage impacts and the intangible impacts, which include song lines, dreamtime stories, um, ancient burial grounds, ancestral spirits, and the impacts on all of those things. Uh, and the other aspect is tangible heritage. And, and there's a report that was actually commissioned by Santos that, that shows that there are 163 sites of high and medium archaeological potential, so places where there might still be artefacts or, you know, important relics from the past that are preserved and they are all in the root of or very close to where this pipeline is proposed to be laid. The ongoing legal battle, where does that sit? I mean, today's decision is one thing, but this is a big project with many features, if you like. Clearly, there's been two cases uh, in attempt to block or delay it. What's the future in terms of these applications? Well, um, we are back before the court on the 13th of November and at that stage the court will decide what is to happen between that date and the full trial of this case, which will take some time. Um, So our clients are, of course, hopeful that this interim protection will be extended at that time and that's what they'll be arguing for. And really fundamentally, this case is about the question of whether, having identified new risks to cultural heritage, Santos should be able to simply proceed with its plans unchanged or whether it should revise those plans and consult with Tiwi people and then resubmit them to the regulator. That's really fundamentally at the heart of this case. It's, it's not a huge ask and that's, that's what our clients are asking for. 
That is Alina Lakin from the Environmental Defenders Office speaking to RN's Andy Park. In its statement to the ASX, Santos said the cost and timing of the Barossa project remains unchanged, although it did say it will assess any impact on the schedule and the cost of the project if the injunction is extended beyond the 13th of November and will update the market accordingly. This matter is set to return to court on November 13 when the court will reconsider will consider a second injunction to prevent Santos from building that pipeline until it revises its environmental plan. An interesting story unfolding in real time. You can read more about it via the ABC News website. It is 18 to 1 and you are tuned into the Country Hour. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, he's in Ipswich right now. He'll be in Darwin later on this afternoon and then he flies to China. Australia's red meat industry will be watching closely this weekend. The boss of Amex on your radio next. Neil Murray, good light in Broome, right across the territory on the ABC. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this lunchtime. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is travelling to China tomorrow, marking the first visit by an Australian leader since 2016. And it comes at a time when trade tensions between the two nations are relaxing, with China this year removing trade tariffs on Australian barley and now reviewing its tariffs on wine. Now, there's still 10 abattoirs which are locked out of exporting meat to China, so could they be next in line for a bit of good news? I spoke earlier to Patrick Hutchinson, who's the boss of the Australian Meat Industry Council, about his expectations for the PM's trip. Well, Matt, we just finished our uh, very big uh, meat processing and export conference on the Gold Coast, and we've had both um, uh, Murray Watt and Susan McDonald there, uh, as well as a lot of luminaries around China, including Stan Grant and Peter Harcher and Saul Eslake, all pontificating around what could well happen in China geopolitically, security-wise, et cetera, and on trade. And so I think we're all on the conclusion, not only that the, the relationship now has strengthened to such a, a opportunity that it shouldn't be very difficult for us to turn uh, all of our systems back on. Beef and lobster are the only two really that are left, and turning back on beef is eight establishments, and China already has all the information. So it's really about the bureaucracy being able to turn that back on. So politicians can shake hands, but bureaucrats are the ones that flick buttons. So we really need that to be happening as opposed to the handshaking. What have the last few years been like for those abattoirs that have been locked out of this trade? It's been exceptionally difficult, obviously, Matt. Um, It's not just been about being locked out of a market of that magnitude because um, you know, we are a very good uh, industry, a very sustainable industry. We are able to pivot exceptionally well. Markets were open to other abattoirs to be going to China. So, you know, with a dwindling supply and a massively world record high livestock price, it ensured that people were being quite choosy where they were putting product and putting it uh, and, and where they were going to market. So we were in some ways somewhat lucky to be in that position. However, um, you don't want to be losing market share. And uh, unfortunately, with those guys being out, Australia actually lost market share to our ally, the US beef industry. So it's now about that circle changing, that cycle is changing. They're going through what we went through three years ago. And as such, uh, it's about our ability to take back that market share. So 
really, you know, they've been able to keep going. They've been able to withstand all of those pressures and they're ready to, uh, to, to go back into that market. Because is it fair to say that if you just looked at the amount of red meat that's been exported to China this year, you'd be forgiven for thinking there's no ban in place at all? That's right, and and this is where the technical aspect of the of the temporary suspensions has come, as opposed to really uh, the bans that we've seen elsewhere, whether it be on like on hay and timber. Ours is a technical nature which has uh, suspended um, in individual establishments, whilst other China listed establishments have been able to uh, uh, to to you know, for want of a better term, fill the void. All of that being said, though, we do have an opportunity as well with the relationship strengthening the way that it is to also speak about hopefully post the switch being turned back on for those establishments that are suspended. Also now going back to the joint statement that we signed in 2017, which said uh, and uh, allowed for an extra 15 establishments in Australia to also have their licences actually created for China. That, in, that as well will help us in regards to getting further market share. How big has China become for Australia's red meat industry in the last five years or so? Oh, look, it, it's it's um, uh, certainly been an exponential growth. Um, I know the you know we had an eight year hiatus on our uh, meat process, processing export conference, um, and, in, and I can tell you back in 2015 when it was last held. Um, as I'm led to be aware, the chat was about CHAFTA, the Chinese-Australian Free Trade Agreement. That was it. This time around in 2023, it is all about China and the discussion around access and our ability to be able to get into back into China, but also the geopolitical tensions, the relationships uh, and all of those things. Pre-COVID, we sent 300,000 tonnes of beef to China in 2019 on its own. But don't uh, ever mistake the fact that we uh, China still only makes up probably um, at its at its peak around about twenty eight percent of our total exports. So anyone who says we need to pivot away from China, we need to differentiate, um, uh, isn't really understanding the markets or our supply chain at all. Because whilst we can differentiate for volume, we can't differentiate for value. So China also adds value to products that necessarily either have a lower value or don't have a value at all and uh, because of their consumption patterns and what they look to do and how they uh, look to consume things. So they are an exceptionally important market for us for a number of different reasons and some of those actually flow into other markets uh, and it's not just about China on its own. That's Patrick Hutchinson, who's the Chief Executive of the Australian Meat Industry Council. Another industry that will be closely watching the PM's trip to China is the resources sector, and not just for opportunities to export. As Australia moves towards building more renewable energy projects, it's likely China will be supplying the wind towers, the solar panels and the batteries. David Clawton has this report from an international resources conference that was held this week in Sydney. We're going to have to mine more copper in the next 30 years than has ever been mined in human history. 
Now that tells me that there's going to be have to be massive investment. That's Clyde Russell, Reuters Asian Commodity Analyst. I met him at IMARC, the International Mining and Resources Conference in Sydney. He's been watching the rise of China over the last 20 years, and he thinks we'll need China to fund new mines to build the renewables needed for the transition to net zero. Australia is already the world's biggest supplier of lithium, a key mineral in batteries, and a big exporter of iron ore, bauxite, gold, lead, rare earth elements, uranium and zinc, all of them used in the production of renewables. Most of that raw material goes to China, which is our biggest trading partner, and they turn our minerals into the end products for the world market. The federal government is concerned about that reliance on China, given the security threat they pose, their use of sudden trade bans on key Australian commodities, and worries about supply shocks that affected so many critical imports during the pandemic. Clyde Russell says they're right to be worried. It's a legitimate concern. I, I think it's, it's, it's safe to say that the Chinese government has shown that it will act in its own interests first. Um, and where its interests uh, align or coincide with the interests of, of Western countries, that's great, that's fine. But if they don't, then the Chinese will do what they want first. The federal government has just put $4 billion into a fund to help finance critical minerals projects, and it wants to see Australia partner with the United States to develop an alternative supply chain for renewable energy products. Clyde Russell says $4 billion is a drop in the ocean, and much more money will be needed to make that work and to fund new Australian mines. $4 billion is not needed in Australia. It's more like you know, 40, 400 billion. And even then, we still wouldn't even be able to do it. If you look at a, this um, this mining conference where we are at, at IMARC, there's, I don't know, 50, 60 small miners in, in, inside the hall. They're all seeking... It's an incredible vibe. They're all sitting in the entire little booths and they're all spruiking their projects looking for money. Yeah, and none of them are going to get it. What has happened over the last 20 years is China's basically become the processor of minerals and metals in the world. They've got a head start, they've got scale, they've got economies, you know, and you're now saying we're going to like, oh, we're going to build this our- ourselves in Australia and the US and in, in Europe. It's just a massively, massively expensive. You're, going to, you're talking trillions. And you actually are going to be doing this at the same time that you're, in theory, changing your energy systems as well, putting in all these renewables and the, you know, the, the sort of um, storage solutions to back them up. That's also costing trillions. So, you know, at some point, somebody's going to pay for it. And, you know, ultimately... That comes down to, can you get private capital interested? Well, we see in Australia that that's not really happening. The big mining companies aren't really investing. It's difficult to raise enough money through local capital markets. Uh, retail investors are not interested. Uh, so where's the money going to come from? It either comes from taxpayer dollars or it comes from other sources of capital. <laughs> that circles you back to China. Another huge Chinese company in Australia is MMG Limited, who mine base metals like copper and zinc. They're part of China Min Metals, which is a Chinese state-owned company. But their mining company, MMG, have their headquarters in Melbourne. They do export to China, but a lot of their product goes to other countries as well. CEO Liang Zhengli told me they want to build processing facilities here, as they've done in Indonesia. In Australia, we're talking about uh, uh, you know building up a hydroxide plant in different parts of Australia. Yeah. We're a project offshore, uh, overseas, outside China, as well as inside China. So a large part of the material that we produce uh, or, or process is actually outside China and serve the market outside China, uh, totally internationally from that perspective. 
So while some Chinese companies are doing well in the Australian mining sector, investment has collapsed in the last few years due to a number of decisions by the Foreign Investment Review Board. FERB has blocked Chinese telecommunications company Huawei and two Chinese bids for major lithium projects in Australia. Clyde Russell thinks the Australian government has to avoid doing that in future and he's hoping Anthony Albanese's visit to China will help relations to normalise because they're an essential part of the transition to renewables. I think what you, what the Chinese will be saying is that they want to be more involved in Australia. From an investment point of view, they'll be looking for assurances that when they want to do deals that they won't get knocked back. Um, and I think it will be interesting to see what uh, the current government feels about that, whether they're, they're prepared to do it. On the whole, though, you know, it's, it's good to have a reset of your relations after a difficult period. Anybody who thinks we can do without China, uh, not just Australia, just the Western world in general, is, is kidding themselves. And if you really want to sort of get China out of your systems, it's going to cost a tremendous amount of money. That's Clyde Russell, Reuters Asian Commodity Analyst, speaking there to David Clawton. G'day, I'm James Quilty. I work at the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research and you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon and we've got some incredible stories to share with you in this second half. For example, you'll hear the story of how a croc attack in the Kimberley led to a new form of pain relief. The crocodile, he just took my finger. Then straight away I got out of there and I went for my delatory. I know the my delatory is a numbing, numbing medicine. So I chewed it up and put the my on it and stopped numbing it, all right. And before one thirty, we hit the road with a real estate agent in the top end to get a behind-the-scenes look at what's involved in selling multi million dollar cattle stations. Rebecca Patrick is at the Weather Bureau this afternoon. Beck, there's been a little bit of rain in Central Australia. How much? Yeah, good afternoon, Matt. Um, so we had another fairly active night in terms of those thunderstorms across the southern half of the NT. Um, yesterday evening there was a fair bit of uh, thunderstorm activity around Alice Springs. Uh, we've also had um, some storms pretty much continuous over the Tanamai district over the last 24 hours. In terms of uh, numbers in the, the rain gauges, Hermansburg received 12 millimetres to 9am this morning um, and then just some smaller amounts around the Alice Springs area, around 1 to 4 millimetres. Um, and then uh, since 9am, we haven't seen too much, uh, just uh, 1.4 millimetres at Rabbit Flat in the Tanami. Okay. The rain is good, but any associated lightning would uh, be risky. Has, has there been much lightning associated with this system? Yeah, there has been quite a lot of uh, lightning across the south. So, um, yeah, not, not good news for the fire agencies there, particularly when we're not getting a lot of rainfall out of those storms either. Yeah, just uh, looking at the NAFI website and there's a bunch of isolated fires in that southwest corner of the Northern Territory, a few around Mulga Park and, uh, yeah, a few just bang on the border. So you can only imagine... Dry lightning is behind that, which is no good. Uh, how, how's the weekend shaping up in general for the Northern Territory, Beck? 
yeah, so across the top end, not expecting too much um, rainfall activity, um, particularly for the rest of today and tomorrow. Uh, might see a little bit returning to the daily districts, particularly southern parts. Uh, on Sunday and also the Tiwi Islands, um, but probably staying fairly dry around Darwin. Um, south of the top end, we'll continue to see some shower storms around, um, particularly those western districts. Um, we've got a high-pressure system that's going to be moving south of the continent over the weekend, and that'll um, reinforce those um, easterly winds across the southern and central districts as well. Um, that's going to be pushing a trough northwards through the Barclay, so we might see a bit of shower and storm activity across northern parts of the Barclay uh, and also the Carpentaria district across the weekend. The weekend for fishos, what can you tell them? Yeah, so coastal waters at the moment, we're not seeing a lot of wind out there. Uh, Darwin Harbour, um, really just fairly variable winds, but getting those sea breezes coming in um, around the middle of the day, about 10 to 15 knots. Uh, further afield uh, off the north coast, we are seeing 10 to 15 knot winds Generally, that'll continue across the weekend. Um, might get up to 20 knots in the um, northern parts of the Gulf of Carpentaria um, and then fairly light off the west coast as well with those sea breezes dominating. Yep. And just looking further ahead, is there anything on the horizon to get us excited that you can share? Yeah, it does look better um, next week for the top end or the western top end at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, from from Monday onwards, um, general increasing trend in, in chance of showers and storms um, uh, as we go in towards the end of the week in particular. Um, probably some fairly good chances that um, we'll get a bit of activity um, around Thursday, Friday, if you're in the daily district. Ooh, okay. Um, uh, next week, next yeah. week. Rightio, rightio. Thanks so much for your time, Beck. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. It's a hot, nasty day in the Northern Territory. Look at these top temperatures. And they're widespread. Bullman expecting a top of 42 degrees today, as is Twin Falls, as is Mataranka, as is Timber Creek as is Avon Downs out in the Barkley, a top of 42 degrees. This is warm stuff, Lajamanu, top of 40 degrees. Hello, my name is President Mary Allen, and I'm from Samoa. I'm lo- I love mangoes, I love baking mangoes, I love to work here in Australia. You listen to uh, Gentry Hour. It is hot. It's been a hot week, and as we go to air, there is a severe heatwave warning in place for the Daly, the Tiwi, the Arnhem, and the Gregory districts. Imagine being out there right now picking a mango. Hot. Marie Picconi from Mambaloo Mangoes in Catherine had a chat to Jan Kahoot about how her company is going about keeping the workers and the fruit as cool as possible. Just lately, um, in the last 
couple of weeks. We've actually been getting to about 40, 41 degrees in the afternoon between about 3 and 5 p.m. And that gets very hot to be out in. How's that affected the crops? Well, it hasn't affected the crops and it hasn't affected the people because we've actually changed or we've actually been doing things differently for quite a while. So we're starting at 4 a.m. in the morning and everyone's out of the field by 1 p.m. The pickers are all out by 1 p.m., which means that the support crew who are picking up the bins and cleaning machines and doing all that sort of thing are in by 2, 2.30. So we're away from the heat of the day. Right. And uh, do trees need more water? to survive in that heat? Uh, We always monitor our water use and irrigate accordingly. Um, They obviously transpire more when the temperatures are hotter and especially when they've got a crop on. So we we do adjust. Not an an extreme amount of extra water, just a little more. Um, But, you know, we don't think that any of our um, blocks are under duress. Has that heat affected the type of fruit or when they're fruiting? Oh, the, the, the heat during harvest doesn't, doesn't unless there's a, um, a lack of water, it doesn't impact the fruit size or the quality of the fruit. Um, the harvesting technique does. So the reason we harvest in the cool, uh, the cool hours of the morning and during up until 1pm is because the fruit isn't too hot and it doesn't... Um, it doesn't get impacted badly by being harvested in the heat. So we don't get scald or underskin browning or all the stuff that's associated with uh, picking the fruit when it's way too hot. That's Marie Piconi from Manbaloo Mangoes, trying to keep it cool in the top end. It is 13 past one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. In 1986, John Watson's finger was bitten off by a crocodile while he was out in a remote part of the Kimberley. He had no first aid kit and he was a long way from help. But with his traditional knowledge, he quickly went to a tree, chewed up some bark, applied it to his wound, and it helped. That experience has led to the development of a new form of pain relief. John told Tara Delangraft about how this all started on the banks of a Kimberley River. The crocodile, he just took my finger and I didn't, I didn't feel it, but I saw the water go, go red and then that red, that red color is my fingers of blood. Then straight away I got out of there and I went for my delatry. I know the my delatry is a numbing, numbing medicine, Aboriginal medicine, so we used is to use that. But anyhow, I used it. I chewed it up and regardless, my finger was bleeding, but I put, them, put my finger in my mouth, put the medulla on it, and stopped numbing it, all right, but it wasn't, didn't stop the bleeding. I went to another tree, I got a sap and put it on it to stop it from bleeding. Anthony, you're, you're John's son. What did you think when you heard your dad had lost his finger? Um, I was right next to him um, in the water um, when he left his wolf finger out of the water um, and, yeah, was to take him out and uh, tend to his wounds. Um, yeah, so he had his bones sticking out and his yeah, fingers missing, a bit gruesome. Um, but, yeah, we um, got his finger um, covered with medicine and to numb the pain. 
how pleased were both of you when you were looking around and you saw this mangrove tree and you knew you'd be able to use it right then and there? Yeah, we got abundance of them along the river and um, it was easy access to get to it. So, yeah, um, just quick reaction. John, you mentioned that it was pretty instant pain relief. You had to do a little bit to stop the blood. What does your finger look like now? It's shorter than the others. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little stump. Yes, no fingernail in it. Your story and your experiences came to the attention of Professor Ronald Quinn from Griffith University. Are you excited your knowledge of traditional medicine is potentially now being used in for, for all Australians and maybe even worldwide? Yeah, well, it did open up that possibility to um, go that stage. And yeah, we got to learn about IP um, and what makes up the product, the compounds within it. So we got to learn a lot. Um, and that's part of the development that we need to move towards. Um, but yeah, it's been an exciting process to get where it is now. Anthony, can you tell us a bit about where that where that process is? We're still in development stage. Hopefully that um, we will keep advancing with that process. But yeah, back in when we first started, um, we didn't know anything about it and We've learned a lot along the process um, um, and have, trying to work towards commercialisation in, in a big scale is um, uh, going to be our next step. As you mentioned, it's it's a traditional medicine but using westernised science to identify these, these compounds within the bark that have the anti-inflammatory and pain relief properties. But then getting to a point where it is commercialised whilst maintaining Aboriginal ownership, that collaboration process, how important is it? It's been a lot of benefit towards actually knowing that a product can be safe, that it doesn't poison anyone, that um, we know that traditionally that it hasn't harmed any of them all over the centuries of using it. But yeah, the the reinforcement from the science side um, um, acknowledge that um, it's a product that you can use without harming anyone. So what's next? We're going back to the Kimberley and hopefully that um, we probably may be ambassadors towards getting other regions and the rest of the Kimberley towards opening up their products towards um, wanting to get into the same position where we are at. That is Nook and a man, John Watson and his son Anthony speaking to Tara DeLangraft. And John's community has partnered up with Griffith University and that partnership has just won an award. They're looking to team up with Olympic athletes as well. There's a lot going on in this space and you can read more about it if you head online. This week on Landline, what do you do when the fruit you've invested millions into growing is no longer profitable? I got the vibe that I hope the bloody hell it works or we're really in trouble. And meet the woman who sold $200 million worth of cattle properties in one year. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. After years of strong growth, Aussie farm sales have dropped off in 2023, but that doesn't mean there aren't buyers around. On Landline this Sunday, Christy O'Brien catches up with Catherine-based agent Olivia Thompson, 
who in the last few years has sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of NT cattle country. Olivia Thompson's job comes with some pretty curly criteria. Navigating bush roads with big vehicles and waterways thick with crocodiles is standard for this outback real estate agent whose specialty is selling vast properties in northern Australia. It was something that I've always said, I wonder how you'd get into that and um, never really dreamed I would end up doing that. Today, she's visiting a station in the Daly region, a few hours south of Darwin, where properties can be cut off for months during the downpours of the wet season. Olivia's very familiar with the country, having grown up on various Northern Territory stations and educated by School of the Air. It was a happy and nomadic childhood. Mum and Dad are gypsies, and um, I think it made us really versatile. As a teenager, she cantered the plains of Texas in the United States as a horse cutter, working alongside some of the best in the world. The people I worked for in the States um, were, um, were, were heavily tied in with King Ranch. So I got to know, um, I got to know those people quite well. Um, so I worked for the Welch family. Um, Buster Welch trained a lot of King Ranch's great cutting horses. And um, a lot of our great breeds today go back to Little Peppy or Mr Peppy Sand Badger and those kind of horses. Now she's in a different kind of big league. I remember when I first moved to Catherine and I sold a property for just under 1.9 million and I was ecstatic. I'd never sold anything that expensive. I mean, that was only four years ago and I just sold a property last year for, well, a couple of properties for 172 million. Hello. I'm ready to work. <laughs> Doris Vale Station is on the cards today. The 67,500 hectare property was one of the first to be established in the Northern Territory. The Harrower family is selling after 40 years. Nice. The old boy thought it was time to put the property on the market. It's been in the family for a good while. Uh, what was it, 79, I do believe he brought into Doris Vale. And, well, I was born and raised here. And I've had the... Um, good fortune of my daughter being born and spending a few years here as well. It's been a great property to the family, but I think it's, well, he agrees and we've sort of come to an agreement that it's time to get out and venture into new things. Yeah. Selling a property a family have put plenty of sweat, dollars and heart into is a big responsibility. I'm sure there will be it'll pull on the heartstrings a little when when it you know when it all becomes real when they close that gate for life. I think so. Yeah. Olivia being local and her knowledge of the area, obviously her parents were here as well in the Northern Territory and just invaluable really, you know. She knows exactly what we've had to put in to get to where we are and yeah, just really does help with the whole process. But navigating the difficult seems part of her personality. The avid horsewoman and once champion boxer's biggest challenge came in 2015 with a life-altering diagnosis. I had a tumour in my spinal cord and I had a whole year of learning how to walk again, basically. Because, yeah, you have to think about it so much. But I'm a lucky person. The grit she developed in her younger years got her through. Before my operation, 
they're giving me the worst case scenario. I didn't hear a word of it. And, and even my sister said when I woke up and I couldn't use my legs, she said, they, they did tell you. I was, I was just like, I, I don't care. I'm going to walk again. You can't tell me I'm not going to do that. As someone who's proved doctors and doubters wrong, Olivia's advice is simple. Someone once said you can be delusionally negative or delusionally positive, and I think I'm always that delusion. Like, I'm going to come to the Northern Territory and settle, sell cattle stations. My first year, I think I made... You made $940 in commission. <laughs> Olivia's made more than 500 sales from stations to roadhouses and residential properties. She started by selling houses in Cairns, but the Territory's wild ways and big personalities lured her back. There's so many characters in the North, and um, I've, I've just been privileged to, to hear so many great stories from... You know, people that I guess um, you know are celebrities in our world in the cattle industry, and and um, and you know they're the big cattle barons, and to hear their beginnings, and this and, and this is it's such a pioneering place that most of those stories started from humble beginnings, and that's what I love about they're just gritty people. That is NT agent Olivia Thompson, and you'll see her in action this Sunday on Landline. And don't forget the Mark Report. How good's the Mark Report on Landline? This week, I'll be taking a look at Meat and Livestock Australia's over-the-hook prices for cattle. Now, MLA's monthly report on this has been struggling for a while, but it's now obsolete. And the reason, according to MLA, is that meat processors have stopped publicising their price data. The abattoirs are not publicising their grid prices. What is going on? We'll talk about this on Sunday, 12.30 on Landline. Uh, hoping you enjoy the rest of your Friday. If you've missed any of our stories from this week, you'll be able to catch it on the website. It's been a busy week. Hope you've enjoyed the coverage. And, of course, keep it rural. Keep it rural.